Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did, you not, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Before we come to look at Acts chapter 5, I have to introduce us this morning to Henry. Now, Henry won't be able to join me at the front here today because he went to be home with the Lord about 300 years ago at the age of 27. And the truth is, no one would have known who Henry Skugel was if it hadn't have been for a crisis of faith that a friend of his experienced. And so to help him to offer pastoral support to him, Henry Skugel wrote a letter to him and his friend was so stunned by what he read that he made copies of it and began to circulate it among friends. Well, they did the same and this letter spread like wildfire until a bishop, a Bishop Gilbert Burnett published it as the book that we know today as the life of God in the soul of man. Imagine getting an email today, or getting a text message today so profound that people are still reading it and talking about it and using it in sermons 300 years from now. In the year 2322, well, in this letter, Skugel says this, the worth of a soul is to be measured by, what, by the object of its love. Did you hear that? The worth of a soul is known or seen or measured by what it loves. And so if your soul loves all that is base and worldly, it is because your soul has shrunken down to the size of things that are base and worldly. But if your soul loves the glory and the worth and the excellence of Jesus Christ, it's because your soul has been elevated to the heights of his glory. A number of years ago now, a pastor asked this question, could the same be true of God? That is, 
what does God love? And what do, what do his loves tell us about God himself? Well, God loves holiness in the church because God is holy. God loves it when his church on earth reflects his holiness in heaven. And you might remember I challenged us all last week and said, let's not wait for persecution to release us into the fullness of what God made the church to be. And you might have been sat there thinking, okay, Hugh, and what does that look like? Well, answer number one must surely be holiness. A church cut off from the world and consecrated to the cause and joys of heaven. And friends, lest there be any doubt that that is priority A in heaven for the church on earth, our passage today is going to settle that case for us. We're all going to need our seatbelts for this sermon from Acts chapter 5. Now, so far in our study in the book of Acts, the devil had sought to oppose the church from the outside. Uh, You remember Peter and John, they'd been summoned to appear before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin had charged them to speak no more in the name of Jesus Christ, and their response to that was to speak loads more in the name of Jesus Christ. And so because opposition from the outside in didn't work, the devil changed his tactics, and the devil began from the inside out. And friends, I want to say to us today, that is what is happening in the church today. It is not only outside in, it is inside out as well. And so we ought to be asking ourselves, what could the enemy be using in my life to do great damage to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world? What could the devil be using in my life to harm the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I a gossip? Do I love to wound people with my words? Do I like to stir up division in the church? Am I hard-hearted? Am I unloving? Am I self-seeking? Am I arrogant? Am I proud? Friends, we need to be on guard just as much from the things in here as we do from the things out there. As well. Now, the point of our verses today is this what is exalted before men is an abomination to God. What is exalted before men is an abomination to God. And my outline is simply this number one, the sin, and number two, the judgment. So, number one, the sin. I want us to look back, please, in our Bibles, Acts chapter 5, and to the verses that Tristan just read for us. Let's begin reading. In verse 1, again, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then after God strikes down Ananias, look down please at verse 7 
with me. It says, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. But Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. So what was Ananias and Sapphira's sin? We might want to say, well, obviously it was lying. Peter says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So, so there it is. Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote this, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. But Peter's question was, why? Why has Satan filled your heart to the lie to the Holy Spirit? So that is, what is underneath the lie? And we might be tempted to say, well, it was the love of money. They sold a piece of land and they kept back for themselves part of the proceeds. And that was no doubt at play here as well. But their lying and their misappropriation of funds were only symptoms of the disease. You remember last week's passage ended with that glowing endorsement of Barnabas. His real name was Joseph. He'd been nicknamed Barnabas because wherever Barnabas was, encouragement was. He was a son of encouragement. And Barnabas had sold some land. He'd laid all of the proceeds at the apostles' feet. They loved him. And then right now in the next verse, we read of Ananias and Sapphira pretending to do the same. Why? For the sake of their reputation, deep down, It was pride. It was pride. John Stott wrote this. They wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation, Stott writes, to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. And church, we must always treat pride, always, always, always as the usual suspect underneath all of our sin. Always. God says in Proverbs 8.13, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. And Augustine said, Pride is the mother of sin and is pregnant with every other kind of sin. And Daniel Defoe called pride, quote, the first peer and president of hell. And someone else said, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. That is pride. And that was Ananias and Sapphira. Friends, please notice what the sin was not. The sin wasn't keeping back part of the proceeds. When Peter looked square in the eyes of Ananias and said, Ananias, when the field remained unsold, was it not at your own disposal? What he's saying is, Ananias, if you'd have only given 50%, that would have been fine. If you'd have only given 30%, that would have been fine. If you would have given 1%, that would have been fine. Why? Because the field was yours. The problem, Ananias, was that you gave 50%, 75%, 95%, and yet claimed that you gave 
100%. For the sake of reputation, for the sake of prestige, and for the sake of the glory of your name. Friends, this is exactly what the indictment of Jesus was toward the Pharisees. Matthew 23, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by by others. And then later Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisee, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And in Luke chapter 16, we read the Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things, Jesus teaching, and they ridiculed Jesus. And he, Jesus, said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God, Jesus said. Friends, that is what was happening in Acts chapter 5. A few years ago, there was this picture that went viral online that was taken by a young woman named Gabriella who lives in Brazil. And so she was visiting her grandma one day. And as a devout Roman Catholic, her grandmother had this section of her lounge that was devoted to the honor of St. Anthony. And so high up in this position of prominence was this little wax figurine of St. Anthony. And there's Gabrielle looking at this wax figurine. And she's looking at it and she can see that St. Anthony looks quite saintly. He's got this very serious, pious expression on his face. He's wearing these brown robes. But then all of a sudden, she notices that St. Anthony's ears were pointy. And she's a little bit curious, and so she gets out her phone, and she starts to dig around a little bit. And eventually she says, Grandma, this isn't St. Anthony. This is Elrond of Rivendell from the Lord of the Rings, the, the elf lord. What had thought to have been one thing turned out to be something very, very different. And when I'm all out of excuses... I go to the gym with one of you, and pride at the gym is easy to see. So maybe someone will grunt really loudly whenever they finish a a bench press or a deadlift, which obviously I'm not doing very much of. And then when they finish it, they'll lift up their shirt, and they'll take a picture in the mirror to upload it instantly to Instagram. But when it comes to religious pride, it is rarely as discernible as pointy ears and Instagram pictures at the gym. See, if we'd have all have been in Jerusalem at this time, I reckon we would have all been amazed at the generosity of Ananias. Because think about this, he did give. He did give of his finances. But what was thought to have been one thing turned out to be something very, very different. And can I say this to us, church? We must be on guard against all pretense in our lives. Pride can be just as destructive as it is devious. 
And so we must be on guard against all pretense in our lives. Now, I'm not recommending a morbid introspection that gets the wheels stuck in the mud and prevents us from doing anything at all. But what I am saying is we must be on guard against all pretending when it comes to religious things. And I I am speaking here this morning to non-Christians and to Christians. To those of you who are here today and you're not yet Christians, please understand that knowing the words to the hymns and singing them with the church doesn't mean you're a part of the church. Just because you're identified with the people of God does not make you a child of God. But what I say to them, I say to church members as well. Man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. Hypocrisy may garner the glory of men, but it will forfeit the glory of God. And all of us have to make our choice between one or the other. And I want to give us five recommendations before we do anything publicly for the Lord. And the first is this, humble yourself before the Lord. Remember that you are small and that he is great. Remember that you are dependent and remember that God is the enabler of the one who serves. So that the one who serves would serve in the power that God supplies. So that in everything, God would get the glory. Friends, think about this. The apostle Peter who saw Ananias and Sapphira drop dead before his eyes, wrote these very words, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Ananias and Sapphira are exhibit A. God opposes the proud. Humble yourselves, therefore, he writes, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Next, ask the Lord to identify where the mixed motives are in your heart. Now, did you notice I didn't say, ask the Lord to identify if there are mixed motives. Instead, ask the Lord to identify where the mixed motives are. Because there are always mixed motives behind everything that we do all the time. And that's true of all of us. I remember hearing a a well-known preacher say that when he began to preach, he would pray things like, God, I want to preach in stadiums. I want to preach in every nation of the world. I want to be an advisor to presidents and to prime ministers. All for your glory, God. And it's like, really? All for your glory? But also, ask the Lord to forgive your pride when you see it. Remember what the psalmist prayed, create in me. A clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Friends, have you not noticed that the sweetness of God's forgiveness is the best motivator for change and obedience? The guilt of sin might get you so far, but knowing that you're forgiven will carry you the whole way. And so pray for God to forgive your pride when you see it. And then also, ask the Lord 
to give you a greater love for his glory than your own. The question for all of us is this, will we believe that there is more joy in glorifying God than there is in being glorified ourselves? Is there more joy in glorifying God than glorifying ourselves? Friend, I want to say there is. Why? Because God is worthy of praise. We are not. Back in the 19th century, before they had the street, street lights that, they, that we have today, someone would have to go around and manually light them like a, a gas lighter. And as Spurgeon was returning from a preaching engagement late one night, street lamps were being lit in the distance up ahead of him. But he couldn't see the lighter because of a London fog. And he said this, I did not see the lamp lighter. I do not know his name, nor his age, nor his residence, but I saw the lights which he had kindled, and these remained when he himself had gone his way. As I rode along, I thought to myself, how earnestly do I wish that my life may be spent in lighting one soul after another with this sacred flame of eternal life. I I would myself be as much as possible, unseen while at my work, and would vanish into eternal brilliance above when my work is done. That is where his joy was. Not in being seen, not in being noticed, not in being praised by men. And fifth, follow your Savior on the path of humility. Who is it that we worship? We worship the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given to him the name that is above every other name, so that to the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So friends, we've thought about number one, the sin. But next I want us to see the judgment. Look at verse five with me of Acts chapter five. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And then after Sapphira had committed the same sin, we read of this in verse 9. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet. And breathed her last. When the young men came in. They found her dead. And they carried her out. And buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church. And upon all who heard of these things. What was the judgment for Ananias and Sapphira? It was death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely 
die. What we have right here is the just judgment of God making its way into space and time. And our response to this account reveals the God that we really believe in. Friends, these verses are heavy. And if we can read Acts chapter 5 verses 1 to 11 without being subdued, without being humbled, and without being afraid, then something is desperately wrong. But friends, if we read these verses and think to ourselves, this is over the top. What kind of a loving God would, then there's a good chance the God that we're believing in has been fashioned and made in our image and likeness. There's a good chance that the God that you pray to and sing to is just yourself projected into the sky. And who cares about all the things that you care about and is indifferent to all the things that you are indifferent about and is enraged against all of the things that you are enraged about. But when Moses asked God, who shall I say has sent me? God's answer was, I am who I am. That is, there is no category in which you can place me and there is no standard by which you can judge me. I am who I am and I am my own judge. And so for us to read passages like this one and think, well, this is just unfair, is to assume a standard of justice that exists isolated from God against which God must be judged. To read a passage like this and think, this is unkind, exposes and reveals the fact that we believe there's a standard of kindness that exists outside of God against which God must be judged. But what that reveals is that our standards our way off because we believe that we are on the throne and that God must be judged by us. When we view ourselves as enthroned, God's actions will be judged in our courtroom. But when we see God as enthroned, we recognize we will be judged in God's courtrooms and we put our hands over our mouths. The following is a, a transcript from a U.S. submarine uh, on the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. So Americans says, please divert your course 15 degrees to, nor- to the north to avoid collision. Canadians, we recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. submarine. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, I say again, you divert your course. Americans, we are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this crew. Canadians, this is a lighthouse, your call. God is the lighthouse, we are the submarine. We change course given who he is. He does not change course in view of who we are. He's on the throne, we're in his courtroom. We are not on the throne and he will never be in our courtroom. And so friends, I want to close with three words of application. The first is this, make repentance your immediate 
priority. It's not tomorrow. It's not the day after. It is now. Make repentance your immediate priority. Do you think that Ananias and Sapphira were worse sinners than the rest living in Hoylake today? No, I tell you. But unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. Make repentance your immediate priority. Someone wrote this, if God killed religious deceivers today, how many church members would be left? Make repentance your immediate priority. Next, make integrity your top priority. The men of the church recently went through R. Kent Hughes' book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. And R. Kent Hughes used Acts chapter 5 as the best illustration of the need for integrity in the church. And he said this, The church cannot prosper with deception among its members. Now, just for the record, I do not believe that Ananias and Sapphira were members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think they were fakes. I think they were phonies. And I think God exposed them as such. But my question for you today is this. What does your web browser say about the difference between what we see and what really is? What does your bank account, what does your bank statement say about the difference between what you sing on Sunday morning and what you actually believe in your heart. Only last Sunday we said, Lord, we sang, Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. And everything I desire is found in you. Does your bank statement sing the same song? Lastly, make God's forgiveness your own. Ananias and Sapphira died for their sin. The Lord Jesus Christ died for the sins of all who believe in him. You then must believe in him today and have your sins forgiven and have the slate washed clean and have times of refreshing come. And before any of you say, it's too late for me, I'm too far gone, remember we're in the book of Acts. Remember, in only a few weeks, we're going to be introduced to a man called Saul, who himself was a religious deceiver. And yet Saul went on to become Paul, and Paul wrote these words. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, says Paul. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Friends, if Saul could receive eternal life, whose hands were dripping with the blood of the saints, then you too can receive eternal life. And you must receive eternal life today. For there is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name given to men among whom we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Friend, believe in him today. I want to give us just one moment. Today has been a heavy Sunday morning. And I want to give us just a few moments to humble ourselves before the Lord, ask him to forgive us of our sin, and then we'll sing together, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. Let's bow our heads and let's take a a moment together.